Hey everyone, welcome to the first ever podcast from Tuyo NYC. My name is Sabrina. I am the founder and co-owner along with my partner Gabrielle of Tuyo. So as many of you know, Tuyo produces handmade porcelain copitas for sipping mezcal. Basically, we love mezcal and we're really interested and invested in promoting agave distillates, particularly ancestral and artisanal distillates. We think the best way that we can do this is by sharing the information we've learned over the years with all of you guys. We're very interested in encouraging people to research and to learn about the different aspects of the mezcal industry, which is pretty complicated to say the least. Basically, we have from A to Z the agave plant that's growing in Mexico somewhere, wild or farmed. And then we have these distillates, these these bottles of mezcal that we're able to buy in a liquor store or, or at a bar. And everything in between that is kind of overwhelming. It's really interesting. You have your palenque where your mezcal is distilled and produced. And, and then you have people coming and buying the product from the producers and bottling it and labeling it and then it's getting shipped through possibly the denomination of origin process in Mexico or not and going through a couple other mechanisms to get over stateside to us and that's how we have this really wide-ranging selection at the moment of some pretty incredible spirits. It's safe to say that Gabrielle and I are approaching this from a place of respect and and humility for sure. Uh, neither one of us are, are experts by any means. We're sort of, we're learning as, as we're going along. But the great news is that New York City specifically has an incredible mezcal culture and community. And we hope with this podcast to introduce you guys to a lot of them. So the idea is basically just to have conversations with people that we know, with experts, educators, enthusiasts, to hopefully share the different perspectives surrounding all of these aspects of culture, production, and distribution of mezcal, as well as, you know, some current topics within the mezcal community, um, maybe things specific to New York City, but but not necessarily. There's going to be a lot of room to be invested in really in-depth conversations. New York is filled with really incredible, really interesting characters, so I look forward to hopefully speaking with a lot of them. Unfortunately, Gabrielle wasn't able to join me for this conversation, but he'll definitely make it in for future ones. And we're actually toying around with the idea of possibly doing some in Spanish with some Spanish-speaking uh, friends of ours in Mexico, really developing the conversation in that way. So you'll have that to look forward to in the future. We definitely welcome all of your comments and suggestions. Please send them to hola at tuyo.nyc. That's H-O-L-A at T-U-Y-O dot N-Y-C. I do want to take this opportunity to thank Milagro Verde. They're an awesome cumbia band, local band in Brooklyn, and they're letting us use their music. So you can find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK, and they play shows all over town. So definitely check them out. They're, they're amazing. Our first guest is Tess Rose Lampert. Tess is a writer and educator specializing in the culture of beverages and food. She conducts classes and events all around NYC and the surrounding area. Tess is a great communicator. She is incredibly articulate, and I really enjoyed talking to her. 
The conversation that we had was pretty general. It will introduce you to Tess. We touch on how she became interested in agave culture. We also discuss things like why do we use the term mezcal versus agave distillate? What are some other types of agave beverages? We talk a bit about the classes that she teaches, which sort of opens up the conversation to discuss her traveling to Mexico and a couple of the different experiences that she's had there and then taking that information and bringing it back into the beverage industry here in New York City. It's a great conversation to listen to if you don't know anything about mezcal or or if you do know a bit. Tess really, really gives us a wonderful view of the agave distillate world right now. Also, if any of you don't know anything about the distillation process for making mezcal and agave distillates, specifically the ancestral artisanal practice of it, I invite you to head over to the story section of our website and you can read the article that I wrote where I interviewed Patrick Dacey of Duke's Liquor Box. There's a ton of pictures in it and, and Patrick did a really awesome job of explaining the process in a really approachable way. So that's kind of a great resource to, to kind of get yourself familiar with the mezcal process. But we will definitely in the future have some episodes dedicated just to the production practices, different distillation techniques. And I hope to talk to some master mezcaleros as well. So we can really have a very thorough explanation and perspective of the art and the practice of, of making these distillates. It's a really fascinating thing. So I thank you all for listening to this first episode. And without further ado, here I give you Tess Rose Lampert. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So just give me a little bit about your background of how you became involved in the agave distillate world. Yeah, absolutely. I like to talk about my background with Mexican culture as the context. Uh, For me, it's all interconnected and really important. I grew up with Mexican culture from a very young age. I was in an immersion program in public school outside of Washington, D.C., where the focus in all of our classes, with the exception of English and P.E., was Spanish language and Latin American culture. So we learned about all of the cultures of Latin America, and we learned primarily Mexican and Argentinian Spanish. In addition to that, my mother took me and my brother to Mexico when we were really little, And I remember very vividly, there's some of my earliest memories in some of the ruins and having a deeply profound spiritual experience and really connecting with what the tour guides were saying. And this was at a time where you could really scale some of the pyramids that you can no longer go up. So it it created a, a really strong impression on me and I continued to study specifically ancient Mesoamerican culture Mm -hmm. throughout university. And I learned how to read the Mayan glyphs and the connection between ancient Mesoamerica and ancient Egypt. So after wandering through all of these studies and and getting an advanced degree in philosophy, I came to work in the beverage industry. And I worked primarily with wine because that's what all philosophers love to do. I was going to say, that's like (laughs) the perfect bridge, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Then I got frustrated with working in the beverage industry in New York. I was young and it was right right after the industry kind of crashed and as a sales rep you were no longer able to earn a very good living very easily and I was, you know, I was like selling New Zealand wine. I decided to take a year off and travel for myself. I had just come off of a big project where I was distributing Eastern European wine and I was going to go to Eastern Europe and visit some of the producers whose wines I was working with. And then at the last minute, I decided that I would go to Oaxaca instead 
because my mom had gotten remarried and went there on her honeymoon and she came back and was like, you got to go to Oaxaca. You're going to love Oaxaca. Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. She really set yeah. this up for me. So I found myself in Oaxaca and I had worked with tequila through my work with spirits in general. Mm-hmm. And I was friendly with two people from Del Maguey, the, the founder, Ron Cooper and Steve Olson, another big name in agave spirits. And if anyone doesn't know who these people are, look them up. They're awesome. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I ran into Steve shortly before my trip and I said, Steve, I'm going to Oaxaca finally. And he asked me when, and I gave him the dates, and he's like, that's great. We're going to be there. Why don't you call me when you get there? And so within 24 hours of me booking a solo trip with no plans, I'm sitting at dinner with Steve and Ron and a few of their ambassadors from Europe, and they were about to start a trip to visit all of their producers the next day. Talk about timing. Yeah. And so they invited me to go with them, and then within the next morning, I'm drinking Tobala from the still of the secret Tobala distillery. Now, was this your first introduction to, I mean, you know, you were in a palenque, you were really experiencing it in a very authentic way. Yes. I had had mezcal in college. Tequila was always my favorite spirit. You know, it wasn't because I thought it was cool because it was Mexican. I just, I really liked the flavor. I liked the way it made me feel. I was not drinking great tequila in college. Thank God, none of us were. Yeah, right. (laughs) And I definitely drank pretty crappy mezcal during college. And, you know, we thought like the worm would make us trip. And, you know, it was just your typical A huge misconception. (laughs) Yeah, probably the worm was plastic. That was a thing that happened for a while for marketing reasons. That was my introduction. I went around with that very small team and got to know Rio Mescal from the the point of view of producers. And after the Del Maguey trip ended, I was staying and some of the guys that were on the trip invited me to go around with them to meet some other mezcaleros, um, so the Cortez family, Holgorio, Nuestra Soledad, a lot of other people in Matatlan. I got to know a lot of producers in uh, at, from in situ. I hung out at in situ. That just became my, my home base. For those of you that don't know, in situ is in Oaxaca, in the heart of the city. There are two owners, Sandra and Ulysses, and they are fantastic. They have an incredible selection. You can just spend many, many hours there. Your entire trip long. <laughs> yes. For a while, it was the place I would go. I would get off the plane, drop my bags, and go to in situ. So that was my introduction. And what I liked about that was that I learned about it as a cultural aspect of this culture that I already really feel is, is a big part of my identity. And I learned about it from the point of view of the producers, not from the service side of the bar as a trendy thing. Mm-hmm. And that for me became really important because I felt this obligation to come back and share what I had learned and promote this cultural aspect in a way that was healthy for the people that make it. Absolutely, because there's a really distinct ecology that exists around the production and the distribution aspect of agave distillates. Um, Let's keep talking about the classes that you give. What can people expect if they come to a class of yours? I think that the only way to really learn and really internalize all of this is through tasting and creating that emotional connection. And I like to incorporate something for everyone. So a lot of times in my classes, there will be a mix of people who have never had mezcal before and people who are really advanced in their knowledge and experience. And I like to weave in tastings practical information, and then also current trends. So I think it's important to look at the context and 
and what's going on with mezcal, with agave distillates, with tequila right now and how we factor into that. What is our role in all of this in addition to just being the beneficiaries, right? In addition to just drinking something delicious, how else are we engaging with this? Absolutely. I mean, everybody listening probably has heard of mezcal, but mezcal is a complicated subject. Just the word, just the name of it. Yeah, I'm a big linguistics nerd. And if we look at the etymology, mezcal comes from Nahuatl words, ishka and metal. Ishka means cooked, metal means mage or agave. So the word mezcal just means cooked agave. And now we use that word to talk about the spirit made from cooked agave. But you can still go to the market and find cooked agave as a snack. And it's very delicious. And if you are going to Mexico and you see cooked mezcal, cooked mague in the market, definitely try it. Any, any spirit made from cooked agave is mezcal. That's the historical definition. But we also have to talk about the legal definition because it is a legally protected denomination of origin product. So the legal definition has other constraints on it. There are alcohol parameters, there are regions. I think now there's 12 states that can legally produce mezcal. Almost all states of Mexico produce an agave spirit traditionally. Because agaves are everywhere. And so the denomination of origin becomes a tricky subject. It is tricky. And I think that there's a lot of corruption, which is no surprise for those people who have been following the agave industry for the last, let's say, five even 10 years. But if you look at the history of mezcal before the last decade, it was way worse. The legal definition of mezcal definitely presents some issues. I think that we're taking steps to make it work for the producers rather than hinder them. But it gets even more complicated when we get into things like Raicilla, Bacanora, Sotol. Which are also three other mezcals. They are from agave plants in different regions in Mexico. And again, it's Raicilla, Bacanora, and Sotol. When you go to a liquor store or a restaurant or bar in the States, you might see different bottles that say agave distillate. Mm -hmm. You might see bottles that say mezcal. Depending on where you live, you could see Bacanora, you could see Sotol, and you could see Raicilla. Specifically, I think they're coming in a little bit more now than they have been in the past. So one thing is Sotol is made from a plant that's not technically that's agave. Yeah. That's the cousin of agave. Historically, again, it's treated as an agave. The spirit is made in a similar way yeah. as we would treat any other agave. If you taste Sotol, you can taste a difference. So culturally, it's lumped in with, with mezcal and agave distillates, which I think is correct. But in terms of the plant, it is yeah. technically different. Ricea and Bacanora, however, are just different subcategories of mezcal. Not legally, but Ricea, the agave distillate that comes from Jalisco, is mezcal because it is made from agave. Right now, the big trend is this uncertified juice that's coming in. So a couple of the topics that come up are if you don't get certified, then there's no regulation. So how do we know if it's safe to drink? But also then you don't have to pay a private lab to certify your product. And that's kind of where we could get into the weeds because there's a lot of conversation around what that looks like in Mexico, uh, which we're not going to go into too much today, but I think it's important to acknowledge it. For yes, sure. it is. And I think there are enough people around the country doing events and seminars and available to talk with where you can delve into this conversation. But there there are good sides and bad sides to the to having 
uncertified agave distillates. Of course, those who have certification, who have gone through the trouble and the payment to get certified, feel like it's not fair for other people to dodge that and cut those corners. Then again, some people may not have those means or want to keep their products out of the hands of those private Mm -hmm. certifiers. Um, And then with Ricea, which is, is even more interesting, Ricea has a council. It does not have an official governing body. Unlike mezcal, which does. And Bacanora, and Sotol, and Tequila all have official groups that are in charge of them, recognized by the government. Ricea has a council of independent people who have agreed to have this council, and we hear a lot about people wanting to have a certification, but when you talk to the people who actually are importing Ricea, they like the fact that it's uncertified because it, it keeps it pure, it keeps it out of the, the other motivations of the government, which is something that I hadn't considered until I heard that come up. So it's there's no really right or wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how long that will last. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I, I think we can discuss a little bit is how and why these distillates are different from other spirits. Being that your background is so rich in wine culture, I think that there's a correlation to be made, specifically regarding like the terroir and where these agaves are grown. Yeah, agave spirits are by far the most terroir-driven spirits. And I say that not as someone who is biased and loves mezcal. I say that as a professional who works with wine and spirits full-time. It is definitely very regional. I describe it, I think that it takes the shape of Italian wine. So there are a ton of different varieties that are specific to the regions. There are even overlapping names. It gets really confusing, as do varieties of Italian grapes. Each region has its own specific style. There are name-protected wines in Italy of note throughout the country. And then there are some others that are just kind of there, very obscure. Same kind of thing happens with mezcal, and if, especially if we take the historical definition and, and include all of the other distillates. When we compare mezcal to other spirits, we often talk about scotch or cognac, mm-hmm. which I think is apt because these are the spirits that have the most notoriety and the most fame and are thought to be the, the most exquisite. The thing to look at there is there's a huge piece of the puzzle with those spirits that doesn't apply to mezcal or the finest mezcal, which is the wood aging. The wood, the time in barrel, the type of barrel, the terroir of the barrel, really, the context of the barrel aging is what makes some of these spirits so special. Whereas with mezcal, we get all of these flavors, these layers, this complexity, but it's just the plant. And and of course we have some aged mezcal, but we're going to put that to the side because it's really not the point right. of, of mezcal. Right. The fact that mezcal you can get these amazing flavors and there is there is age right there's age in in the bottle many of the the fine mezcals that we're drinking have a decade or two of preparation to make them so there is that time and that energy that goes into it but it's not from another ingredient it's just from the plant and when you say a decade or two of preparation you're referring to the time that some of these agaves take to grow exactly so the complexity of flavors are coming from the plant itself and anyone who is a plant person or you know even if you just really like specialty produce and shop at your market you know that if it makes a difference where a plant is grown and how it's grown. So that's what really makes it so terroir-driven. We could even argue that that mezcal is more terroir-driven than wine. 
it would be an unpopular argument among wine professionals especially, mm-hmm. but that's just because we would be clinging to something we, we think we already know. Mm-hmm. But if a plant is in the ground for 15 years mm-hmm. and that's the flavor we're translating into the glass, mm-hmm. that is that is a huge amount of terroir. That's not just one vintage. That's the 15 vintages. It's like a quarter of a generation. And just for those of you that might not know all the details about the different types of agave, we'll get into that in, a, in another episode. But for right now, it's important to know that it's a minimum amount of eight years for an agave to grow and uh, become mature enough to harvest. So we're talking about a great deal of time. The other thing I find that's really fascinating is oftentimes it's like a spontaneous fermentation with the natural yeast mm-hmm. in the environment which is different from a lot of wine production. Yes. I would say the majority of wine producers are using not just the natural yeasts that exist on the grapes. They're adding a yeast that they have cultivated from that region, which would still be the local indigenous yeasts, or they're ordering their yeast from the yeast store. (laughs) And you can even choose specific yeasts to promote specific flavors or textures. With mezcal, certainly any artisanal mezcal, probably the vast majority of mezcal you will drink, is made with spontaneous indigenous yeast fermentation. So it's literally what's in your bottle is the plant and maybe a little bit of water added, depending on the variety to get it kind of juicy and um, get it liquidy enough for the fermentation to get going. But in some cases, it's literally just the plant. So it's very, very pure, which is another reason why a lot of people who can't tolerate spirits or even alcohol at all can tolerate mezcal. No sugars, you know, no grain alcohols um, to cut. It is important to do your research so that when you want to purchase a bottle of mezcal, agave distillate, whatever, um, the internet is an amazing resource. But also, oftentimes, I mean, we're in New York City, and there are some fantastic liquor stores out there with very knowledgeable people and some wonderful restaurants and bars that have experts on staff. So ask questions. That's my advice. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's worth having a conversation before you buy a bottle or even before you buy a flight or a, a single pour. Absolutely. This this liquor is, is meant to really be tasted in totality. So serve neat and, and not mixed in a drink. And, you know, I, I'm one that says, like, no ice ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's me. You know, everybody has their own style. These spirits are really special. And the process by which they're made is really specific. And it takes a really long time. They're incredibly amazing and they deserve the respect. Yes. So I get asked all the time in my wine classes, what do you think about people who want to put ice in their wine? And I say that's fine. You know, I offer some advice to not offend your hosts and be open-minded that there might be a wine you don't want to put ice in. I am not as gracious when it comes to artisanal mezcal and ice. I, I literally refused to serve mezcal on the rocks, even when I was managing a restaurant in New York City. Uh, I would give them a glass of ice on the side and make them do the dirty absolutely. work. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. My theory with mezcal is it takes too much time and effort and it's really liquid art and it's something that deserves enough respect that just because you have enough money doesn't mean you can disrespect this product. There was a point in time where we knew nothing of mezcal. Mm-hmm. That slowly it, you start to develop this really beautiful understanding of of what this stuff is. I mean, it's what brings us here together today. It's what it was. You know, it's through conversations that you learn more and more and more about it. Like, and that's why I think your classes are a wonderful resource to introduce people or to go in depth 
you know? I know that you, you teach classes that are based on region. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Region and then trends. I do one about tequila versus mezcal. I do trade seminars as well that go a little bit deeper into the history and give people the tools how to start conversations with consumers about this to engage at different levels. And I think the most important thing for me and my colleagues is to keep an open mind and remember that we are by no means experts. I didn't grow up in a palenque. I didn't grow up with a family that made an agave spirit. And my my level of knowledge is um, not as deep as my level of appreciation. And sometimes my friends correct me or other people have something to offer that uh, contradicts something I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. And I really welcome that information. Uh, I I consider it an ongoing exploration rather than something I can master. The uptick in mezcal enthusiasm, I mean, you've seen it over the past 10 years, specifically within like the past three to five, Mm -hmm. has been exponential. We're seeing so many new brands that weren't around five years ago. Too many new brands. If you are thinking about starting a mezcal company, please do not. Don't email me about picking my brain. I will just tell you not to do it. Yeah, there's a lot to negotiate through in all of this, which is why it's very important to ask questions. To be open to the answers that you receive from from people you know that that might know a great deal i've never been turned away because i i don't know enough i think it's just all about just sharing the passion for for these spirits absolutely people are excited to share what they know and and have another member in the community definitely and if we can do it in a responsible way you know just not exploit it i think that's that's a big factor as well if we do exploit it What will end up happening is we will cannibalize our own international market. So mezcal will be fine. It will continue to be amazing in Mexico where it's made, but we may lose the privilege of having access to it at the level that we do now, which would be a shame. I'd like, I'd like in 20 years for that, that generation of new beverage uh, drinkers to be able to sip what we have today. And that will require us to approach this with respect. So where can people find information about classes, what you have going on? So I have a calendar on my website, which is Palette Trip, P-A-L-A-T-E-T-R-I-P.com. And you can find all my public classes there, as well as some other links and information. And then if you follow my Instagram, which is TessRose211, I post things there as well with um, little tidbits and events that are happening. There's always there's at least one event a month that's fun. If you're a member of the trade, then there's usually at least one or two other trade events, which are fun. If you're an enthusiastic consumer, then we often consider you honorary trade. So <laughs> don't be intimidated by that. And these are New York-based events? New York Most of these are events. New York-based events. Um, I do go to some other markets throughout the year, so D.C., Chicago, um, and then we'll see what, what's in store for 2019, probably adding a couple of other cities. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, Tess, thank you so much. Salucita. Salucita. This podcast was produced by me, Sabrina Lassard, and Gabrielle Velasquez-Azueta. It was edited by Brittany Prater. Our great, great thanks to Tess for being our brave and fearless first guest. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Salusita.